Yeah, I'm good. Yeah. Yeah, man. How's Lila doing? I'm running a little late. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace, your love. Thank you for bringing us each here today. We thank you for this church, this setting. Thank you for the people you've brought to this church. Um, Continue to keep us anchored um, in your word and keep us anchored in your love. Um, I pray that you would use this class, Lord, to continue forming us more into the image of your son, that we would um, love you more and love each other more and live in this world uh, in a more grounded and in a more um, engaging way. Would we learn more through, through a class like this, just how to be salt and light in this world? pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, we are continuing Christianity in the Arts. This is class 10. Um, so we, I hope you've seen so far as we've gone along and considered all kinds of different aspects of art, um, that engaging with art is a great application of the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, I think engaging with the arts well can help us become the kind of people that love the Lord and love each other well, because as we've hopefully seen, lots of examples of how the arts can actually cultivate in us a deeper love of God and each other. Um, So we've talked about story quite a bit already, Zachary gave kind of an introduction to story early on, um, and I loved his opening question in that lesson where he said, he just got us thinking about what are three stories, name just three stories that have, what what was it, most impacted you? And what were your three stories again? They were um, Christmas Carol, Christmas Carol, Kill a Mockingbird, Kill a Mockingbird, and Peter Pan, Peter Pan. Um... So I've been honestly chewing on that question for a while. I've only come up with one so far, uh, and it's Remember the Titans. Um, but it's a, it's a movie I watched a ton growing up. Could probably at, at one point quote the whole thing. Um, but I think it, it, it impacted me in many ways. One was just how to love people that are different from you. It exemplifies that really well. But also um, just determination Rising above obstacles. There's a lot of, a lot of that. Um, I just, yeah. But I'm, I'm definitely still thinking about that question. Um, but yeah, we've talked about movies. We've talked about plays, uh, which of course are stories as well. Um, and today is literature, which still hits on the theme of story, but maybe in a little bit different way. And if you knew me in high school and you knew that one day I'd be standing in front of a bunch of people teaching about literature, uh, you would would laugh because I had zero interest in reading books um, at all, fiction or nonfiction, really until late college. And so I've been making up for lost time ever since, and I just, I love reading now. Um, Obviously, being a pastor 
you do that a lot, um, and you probably need a love reading to be a pastor, but um, I've just, I've really been enjoying um, getting into literature, especially in the last several years, and uh, always looking for good uh, recommendations for books. Um, as you think about literature, um, any initial thoughts from anyone? What are some, some reasons Christians should read good literature? I'm thinking probably a little more of fiction than nonfiction, and we'll, we'll kind of talk about that a little bit later. But yeah, Daniel. So you're saying, like, um, yeah, the, the better we get at just engaging with literature in general, it'll help us engage the Bible in God's written word. Is that maybe what? Okay, so. Okay. Yeah, Ray. Shines a light on human nature. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Kirk. Storytelling by far the most effective way to Yeah, absolutely. Great points. Yeah, Jonathan. I know. Yep. Okay. So you're saying engaging and reading literature will will deepen your discerning skills and yeah yeah absolutely. And good literature will really, really right. help with that. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Ross. 
Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, Phil. Yeah, absolutely. I, that was going to be one of my first points, actually. Um, you know, it, it builds our imagination, which I've talked about is important, I think, for Christians to, to have disciplined but developed imaginations. Um, but I think it also helps, um, you know, of many things. It can, I think, we're living in an age, well, let me just read the quote. The linear mind is being pushed aside by a new kind of mind that wants and needs to take in and dole out information in short, disjointed, often overlapping bursts. The faster, the better. Our brains work one way when trained to read in logical, linear patterns. That's like, that's the way your brain is engaging in a, a good, you know, work of literature. And another way, when continually bouncing from tweet to tweet, picture to picture, and screen to screen, these effects on the brain are amplified by technology developers who intentionally build addictive qualities into programs in order to increase user engagement as some industry leaders have acknowledged. So amongst other things, really diving into a good book um, is really good for our, the, the cultivation of, of our brains and our minds, um, which we could have a whole other discussion on. Um, I'd say it helps us read biblical narratives more carefully. Um, one thing to think about is um, the use of ambiguity in biblical narratives, um, especially Old Testament narratives. Robert Alter is an Old Testament scholar who's written a lot on this. Um, and one of the uses he says many Old Testament stories use is the literary tool of ambiguity. You think of literary tools like simile or rhyme. Um, many, many of the works of literature we love today exercise the use of a, a real omniscient narrator. Narrator, the narrator is talking a lot and bringing you into the minds of people. Um, but in a uh, but in a story that has that uses ambiguity, there's not as much narration. Uh, we hardly ever get to hear the inner thoughts of the characters. We hardly ever get a blunt description of a character's motives. And so there's, there can be unintentional ambiguity, which you know, makes for bad literature and sloppy, but intentional ambiguity, when an author intentionally withholds information, he does it because the story is actually better without it. So one person has said, biblical authors use ambiguity as a way of inviting you to the party. If you are reading a story that lays everything out plain and simple with the moral overtly stated and the villains and heroes clearly labeled, there's not much work left for you, the reader, to do. However, the Bible is not interested in disinterested readers. The God of the Bible wants to suck you in. Um, so the Bible reads like real life. The narratives of the Bible refuse to be boiled down to a, a moral of the story. Um, you know, does any event in life have just one meaning? Can the experiences in our lives be boiled down to heroes and villains? Do we ever fully comprehend the inner desires and motives of the people we interact with? So just, these are, uh, these are some thoughts from, from a pastor who wrote on biblical ambiguity based on Robert Alter's thoughts. Um, so yeah, just another example of how even engaging in good literature can actually help us read the Bible better. Um, wanted to talk about this book. Uh, it's called On Reading Well. 
uh, by Karen Swallow Pryor. She actually um, is in the Triangle area. I think she, in the last couple of years, she took a position at Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest. She just resigned. Okay. Resigned or retired? Resigned. Is there a story that I'm not aware? Is there, is there a story there? Okay. Okay, well, that's, that's sad to hear. Um, all right. Well, maybe she won't be in the Triangle area much longer. Um, but in this book, she's talking about just the formative power of good literature. She um, was a longtime English professor at Liberty, I believe, um, and, and then worked at Southeastern the last couple of years. Um, so she, um, she talks about, um, you know, she talks a little bit about fiction versus nonfiction. Um, and she, the, the, she thinks a better category is good literary writing versus bad literary writing because, you know, nonfiction can, can really draw you in as well. But nonfiction is more designed to inform us, um, she would say, and fiction is more to form us. Um, in fiction, you're able to live more vicariously through, through the, the characters because you have a better insight usually to their inner world. Um, you're, you're invited into the story more. Um, and again, there are so many reasons to read good nonfiction, good history, good examples um, of especially, you know, believers who've, who've done courageous things. Um, but I, I think it's just helpful to think about there are actually some really, really strong benefits of, of fiction as well. One person says it, it cultivates an empathetic imagination. Um, so the formative power of, of good literature, there, there are some cautions, um, though, you need to be aware of when you're thinking about the formative power of, of literature. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote her at length. Uh, give a couple longer quotes. Um, so one of the things she says is just be aware of using literature versus receiving it. So she says, C.S. Lewis argues that to approach a literary work with nothing but a desire for self-improvement is to use it rather than to receive it. Um, this is sort of what Ross was saying is, you know, reading it, it can can help us encounter beauty. While great books do offer important truths about life and character, Lewis cautions against using books merely for lessons. Literary works are, after all, works of art to be enjoyed for their own sake rather than used merely for our personal benefit. To use art or literature rather than receive it merely facilitates, brightens, relieves, or palliates our life and does not add to it. And then there's, she says this, reading well adds to our life not in the way a tool from the hardware store adds to our life, for a tool does us no good once it's lost or broken, but in the way a friendship adds to our life, altering us forever. Anyone um, want to venture to try and um, unpack what she means by that bold quote on the bottom, reading well, adds to our life not in the way a tool does, but a friend does, altering us forever. What do you think she means by that, that comparison or contrast, I guess? Yeah, Michael. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, any other thoughts? Yeah, Lindy. Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, that's that's good. So a friend you can come back to and, and have more um, impact from, a tool that always has the same function. Yeah, any other thoughts on what that means? I, th I think sh I, part of what I'm getting is just it's, it's um, has a, affects us in a deeper way than just a mere tool. Um, it changes us at, a, at, a, at our core in some ways. Um, and I appreciate this whole thought in this paragraph, and yet, you know, the rest of her book, she's going to basically give 12 virtues that, um, you know, are, that Christians are to pursue and, and different books that help us cultivate those virtues. So it, it almost seems like, even though she gives that caution, it seems like some of what she's doing in this book is training us to read in a sort of utilitarian way. Um, but I think it's, it's a both and. Um, and then she says, reading well means considering not just the content, but also the form. Um, another long quote here. Unfortunately, today we are conditioned to focus on content at the expense of form. When we read or watch a film or view a work of art, we tend to look for themes, worldviews, gripping plots, relatable characters, and so forth, but often neglect the form because we're in a culture influenced by utilitarian emphasis on function at the expense of beauty and structure. So form um, helps us have the, what she calls aesthetic experience. So it's, it's about, when you read a good literature, it's not just the content, it's, you, there's also an experience it gives us that forms us. Um, through the imagination, readers identify with the character, learning about human nature and their own nature through their reactions to the vicarious experience. This is the difference between learning propositional truth through reading history or an argumentative essay and gaining knowledge and, and those things versus gaining knowledge aesthetically. I love that phrase, gaining knowledge aesthetically through the process of reading a fictional narrative. A story means by how it proceeds. A story means, Zachary, what does that mean? <laughs> um, well, I think probably um, allowing something to unfold mm -hmm. before us, before, because we're very quick to judge something right away, especially talking about content. Yeah. Right? That's one way that we just immediately tell something is good or bad by how many words it has or what kind of violence it contains or something like that and not only that but other other types of content but those you know so rather letting a story open itself up yeah for the when we attack it for yeah what it wants let it be what it is um, and let that unfold i think is probably a little bit of what she's getting at. yeah absolutely the aesthetic experience of literature its formative quality differs from its intellectual or informative qualities. We learn from fiction in something like the way we learn directly from real life. Just as in real life, a work of literature doesn't assert, but presents. 
You know, it's that idea. A lot more is caught than taught in life. And I think there's a way through literature that you can catch a lot of things. Um, let's see. Because we first make sense of the world aesthetically through sensory experience, our primary means of processing is more like poetry than propositional analysis. Uh, I would say, for example, so much of communication with other people is nonverbal. It's not just the content of what they're saying, but how you're experiencing them when they're saying. Um, and that's similar to how a book impacts us. Just as our first response to the world comes through its physical shape, so too our first response to literature comes from the way its form shapes our experience of it. Training our, and so she's going to give the example of the book Silence by Shusaku Endo. And that book starts in the third person, in the first third of it, and then the middle section of it is in the first person, and then the last third is in the third person again. And that form, switching from third person and then first person where you're really getting into the person's life and then back to third person, that form actually shapes your experience of it, um, which shapes how the book affects you. Training our affect or emotions is a way of shaping our very perceptions of training people to see situations in the right way. Developing perceptiveness, the sort that literary reading requires, cultivates virtue because action follows effective response. Action follows effective response. There's an effective response that a good work of literature should produce in us that's going to lead to action. Emotions, one of the things emotions do is they um, propel action. All right, and then she kind of, kind of sums this all up by saying, reading well cultivates virtue. Um, and she quotes this you know, literary critic who says, the ultimate test of a book is the difference it would make in the conduct of life, and who's just kind of arguing that you know, a huge goal of, of most writers of stories is um, to move us, to change us in some way. Um, again, as Christians, we need to have discernment because sometimes it's, it's towards ways that are unbiblical that they're trying to move us towards. Um, so reading good literature is not the only way to cultivate virtue. There are people that, you know, we all could name who don't like books and yet are very virtuous people. Um, and it's also not a guarantee. Just because you're reading good work of literature doesn't mean you're going to cultivate any kind of virtue that it might help you with. Um, and also, you know, a good story will often push us towards virtue by showing a vice, you know, by showing the negative aspects of a vice. And um, we could give many examples of that, and I'll give some in a second. Yes? Everything sad is not true.
Okay. Wow. Wow. Okay. Mm, yeah, yep. And what's the name of it again? Is it fiction or nonfiction? It's a mix. Wow. Okay. Thank you for that recommendation. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's one of the hopes of, of even this class particularly. She, she goes through 12 books, um, and i you know hoping part of this class is just, if, if any of these books you haven't read, it might inspire you to, to, to read them sometime. So I I'm, I'm appreciate that recommendation as well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so literature provides a vicarious practice of virtue. Um, she gives 12 virtues. She goes into her explanation of why she picks those 12. We don't have time for that um, at this point. Um, but stories that exemplify the formation or at least um, help, you know, give space to, to move towards those virtues. So the first virtue is the virtue of prudence. Um, what is prudence? Historically, there was a distinguishment between wisdom and prudence. They were both under the same category of wisdom. Wisdom is more general and prudence is more specific. So prudence is applied wisdom. It's practical wisdom. Um, and she says the book, The History of Tom Jones, A Foundling. Has anyone read that? Anyone here read, read that? Uh, I hadn't either. Um, but uh, it's a story, it's considered one of the first English novels uh, written in the 1700s. It's the story of the noble squire Al Allworthy, he discovers a foundling, which is an abandoned infant that is found. That's what the phrase, all right, that's my alarm that I need to let Megan and Lacey come up. Um, I'm going to, give me one more minute. Give me one more minute. I wanted to make sure you had enough time, but I did want to make sure you had enough time. Um, a foundling is an infant who's abandoned and then found, and so this guy finds this infant, decides to raise him like a son, names him Tom Jones, Eventually, Tom Jones is kicked out of his house wrongfully, and it's the story of Tom Jones learning wisdom. Uh, he literally pursues this girl whose name is Sophia, of course, for wisdom, and it's just his journey of cultivating wisdom. Um, I'll do one more, and then I'll let you guys come up. Temperance. Um, what is temperance? Temperance, you think of self-control. Uh, we often think of suppressing bad desires, like not doing bad things that we're maybe tempted to do. And that is part of temperance. But temperance is not just that. It's also cultivating the right desires. Um, temperance is difficult in our culture of excess, she talks about. Um, and her example is Great Gatsby. Um, has anyone ever read Great Gatsby? Yeah, it's a lot of you. Um, she says, Great Gatsby interrogates eerily and prophetically the reckless excesses of American life during the Prohibition era. 
excesses that would contribute to the economic crash a few years later, bringing about the Great Depression and the tumbling down of the American dream. She says, Great Gatsby offers a larger-than-life picture of a life spun out of control by excess. If temperance is selfless, if temperance is selfless, self-preservation, then Gatsby is the epitome of intemperance. Um, I would also say the book East of Eden, a book that I've read recently. Has anyone read East of Eden? So, some of you. Um, it's a fascinating book. Um, it's a commentary, essentially, on the Cain and Abel story. And um, he uses part of his own family's history, but also this kind of fictional family um, as versions of Cain and Abel. And he's wrestling with, he feels like Cain was treated unfairly by God. Uh, that he, 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 He's wrestling with, um, you know, uh, it's partially because of God's unacceptance of Cain's and acceptance of Abel's that it, it kind of made Cain. And, and he's, he's wrestling with victimhood, essentially. Are, are we going to be victims of our life? And I think, I think he theologically, you know, misses some of, the, some of what is being taught in Genesis 3 and 4. But I think at the end of the day, he has a really good um, message about taking responsibility. The, the book really centers around one verse in Genesis 4 where God tells Cain, essentially, that you need to take responsibility for your actions. Sin is crouching at the door. You need to master it, essentially. <laughs> um, and the book is a reflection on that where he has people who could kind of sulk as victims and just, woe is me, and it's about them kind of slowly learning how to take responsibility. And as someone personally who can struggle with victim mentality, it was actually very, um, very moving to read. So it's, it's reader discretion advised. There's some, there's some hard, there's some violence in it that, is, that can be tough, but it's uh, very provocative. All right. Um, I was going to go through justice, courage, faith, hope, love, chastity, diligence, patience, kindness, and I still can, but I'm going to let you guys go right now because I just want to make sure you get enough time. Yes, absolutely, please. No, please come up. All right, so Megan made the mistake of telling me the other day, like, hey, you should think about Flannery O'Connor. She's awesome. And so then I reached out and said, hey, why don't you, why don't you talk about Flannery O'Connor? And then, but, but actually, uh, it worked out perfect because Karen gives Flannery O'Connor as an example, some of her writings as an example of humility. I don't know if that's exactly what you guys will talk about, but I thought y'all could share, give us a little introduction to Flannery O'Connor. You don't have to. Um, have any of you guys read Flannery O'Connor? Oh, few of you, great. Because we are the, like the resident fan club. So if any of you guys would like to join the resident fan club of Flannery O'Connor, we'd love to have you because we hide and talk Flannery.
Chris is Viper from grad school, and he made me live on Broadway this last week. And he's just, it'll be fun, you'll love it. I'll help you, it'll be easy. Yeah. Right. But anyway, so I got to take a deep dive into Mannery O'Connor. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of an introduction on her style of writing, and a few tips on how to approach her writing. And my second tip is why you should read her. She's great. Um, Southern Christian Gothic tradition, um, as well, with uh, Walker Berkeley, are you familiar with Walker Berkeley? I love Walker Berkeley. Um, and so you get the very situated Southernness in her writing. And so if you are a person of a particular age who has ever lived in the rural South, you will very much understand and see in her writing people and the landscape Usually, the Gothic part of Flannery O'Connor uh, that can trip people up. And so, um, the Gothic doesn't necessarily mean scary and pointed ceilings and all of that. Um, so, if you've read Dickens, you know that, that he has very larger than life characters. And uh, Flannery is sort of like that, except where she uses exaggerated. mostly write short stories, so uh, we're going to give you a couple of recommendations for your entry-level Flannery O'Connors. Um, but the first one is, come to her stories with your sense of humor fully engaged. Um, you will enjoy her a lot more if you come uh, ready to laugh at her work. Um, but also, um, <laughs> being prepared to vicariously experience life on the shadowy Uh, yeah, so I'm totally underqualified to talk about her. I just love her and read her, have read her multiple times um, and have talked with Lacey quite a bit, but I didn't actually get into reading her until later on um, in adulthood. But um, one of the things I love about Flannery um, that was actually sad for her is that she suffered chronic pain. So she had lupus 
and died at 39. So she lived with her mom in Georgia, and she wrote these larger-than-life stories, and her life was very small. So she raised peacocks and birds, and she had a farm, and she didn't really go any, a lot of places. Um, and so if you like reading letters, um, she writes a book called, well, she didn't actually write it. She did, but through letters. Somebody compiled a bunch of her correspondence, and um, it's called The Habit of Being. And if you want to be inspired about just what it means to live through suffering, um, that is an amazing book. Um, she was a Catholic, so her theology is a lo little bit a lot different than ours, but Christ is definitely at the center of everything that she writes. Um, and some of the themes that she uses are she likes to contrast them through symbolism. So like evil and grace, she likes to show um, a very stark difference between those two. Um, redemption, she's, that's a huge theme of hers. She oftentimes will pick a character and um, they're the ones that are not redeemed in, her, in their hearts and in her mind. So she'll remove a body part. <laughs> so um, there's one character who has no leg from um, the knee down, and she's a, a professor, and she thinks she knows everything, and she's living with her mother begrudgingly, although Flannery did not live with her mother begrudgingly. But, um, and then she ends up getting her wooden leg um, stolen by a Bible salesman. So... When we say bring your humor, like, like for real, we don't want to ruin it. We don't want to totally ruin it. But, um, yeah, so that's the kind of stuff. And then she talks a lot about guilt and innocence. Like, what does it mean to us? Um, pride and humility and free will versus freedom. Um, and so one person wrote, freedom, true freedom, as Connery defines it, one proffered to man by a god of order requires the annihilation of self, the destruction of pride, vanity, inordinate self-interest, and respectability to achieve saving grace. It is a lesson Flannery's characters must learn the hard way, and one we, her readers, engulfed as we are in an age increasingly techno technological, material, and wholly sensual, where religion has been reduced to the quaintness of long-discarded habits, are in danger of not learning at all. So she really wants to challenge us as Christians to look at the little sins, the acceptable sins in our life, um, the ones that we kind of look at as like, meh, it's not that big of a deal. Maybe I was a little prideful or whatever. And she shows how those grow and build um, and can become very destructive in our hearts and with our faith. Um, so that's what I love about Flannery. I know it sounds like, why would I want to read that? Um, because it's kind of it's sobering, like it makes you sit in your sin and think, um, but there's also a ton of grace in what she, um, in what she writes. So it really is funny. So we would recommend starting with A Good Man is Hard to Find. That's a collection of her short stories. Um, that's her favorite, uh, her, yeah, that's her favorite short story, which also, if you read it, you're going to be like, what in the actual world did I just read? <laughs> so then read it again. Um, I actually like The Lame Shall Enter First. That's my favorite one. Um, but um, if, you, if you get in the library, you can get, like, a collection consecutively through all of her stories, and the best way to read her is from, from her first story on because she changes as a writer through each of her stories. Um, so I actually just got done doing that for a second time. Um, so anyways, and then Revelation. And Revelation is another. That, that was her last one or second to last yeah, one yeah. before she died at my age, which is also kind of weird. Um, but then also Ross asked me to tell y'all that I wrote a book. Yes, I, please, please tell us. I don't you wrote want, a book. What I, is it, and why did you write it? Lacey, you want to do this? I don't want to do it. I really don't want to do this, y'all. Like, ugh. okay. So I did write a book. I wrote a fiction book. I self-published it. Um, it is under the um, the awful title of Christian fiction. I, I don't love Christian fiction all the time. 
Um, but in order to get it published, I kind of had to go that route, which was not really what I wanted to do, but I felt really called to do. Um, but it's a fiction book about um, a character who has uh, mental illness, um, specifically obsessive compulsive disorder. So it is a, um, I would say, hopefully, I mean, Lacey edited it for me and says it's good, so I believe her. But I sometimes think it's um, <laughs> bad art that some people like, but... I've heard other things from other people, so I just kind of cringe and go on. But, um, but my, the purpose of the book was to give Christ to people who struggle with mental illness um, in an entertaining fashion. I do not learn through nonfiction. Uh, I struggle with reading nonfiction, so writing it uh, was really fun for me. And um, so it hopefully will go and help people. It seems to have so far. Um, What's it called? Ugh. It's called Loving Naomi. You can get it from me if you want one. I have Loving one. Naomi. Yeah. No, buy the book. Yeah. That's how this works. Buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyways, so yay, we finished. Thank you guys. One so minute much. early. Thank you so much. And I'm don't suggest anything for him to talk about. Yeah. Because you will Watch be out. up here. Watch out. <laughs> All right, we got two minutes. Any? Yeah. Oh, wow. Cool. So uh, there's a author, Jonathan Rogers, who wrote a book on her, a biography of her, and he's, right, he's offering a free class on Flannery Oh, it's not free. Sorry. I thought you said a free class. Sorry. Cool. Six-week class on Flannery O'Connor. Yeah, Michael. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, a great encouragement to focus not just on the content of the Bible, but its form as well. Absolutely. Any other final comments or questions or thoughts? Reactions? All right. Oh, yes, Misty. I got it for you. There you go. It's all on the slideshow, so if you want to just download the slideshow. But I'll, uh, yeah, I mean, I can absolutely send you a, um, a uh, emailed list, too. All right. Thank you, guys. You are dismissed. <laughs>